Hello, my name is John Schwartz, and we're back again today to hear some stories of wild animals and the people who love them in our podcast series, Tales of Transformation, The Magic Between Humans and Wild Animals. With me once again is our storyteller and tour guide, Dr. Susan Eyrick, the founder and director of Earthfire Institute Wildlife Sanctuary, located near the Grand Teton Mountains. Today's segment is the second part of our first podcast, the story of Thunder the Wolf and the beginnings of the Earthfire Institute. You know, as you were telling your story, um, I, I, there are a lot of fascinating things along the way. One of the things that struck me is that I had this image of you as, I think you said you were four years old and you were, you were, uh, passionately, um, well, distressed or, or what have you, you were at least, at the very least, extremely curious about the treatment of animals. And as you were, as you were relaying that experience, um, I wonder if, I, I thought about how that's a, I think that's a very common experience for children, that um, they, there's a natural, it's, it's in all of our nature to, to have compassion for all living things, that what we come into the world with, I, I think, for, for most everyone. And I'm sure that many has been the time that a child asked that question of their parents. And I had this image of, for most people, as they ask that question of their parents, that then they begin a journey of kind of watering down that that compassionate impulse, or, or not watering down the compassionate impulse, perhaps, but um, but just getting used to the idea that the way things are is the way that things are. And it sounds like that acceptance maybe never fully took root in you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that the way things are are not necessarily the way things should be. And, um, and so I wonder if, if that sounds right to you, you know, your own experience, and if, uh, if you also agree that that is kind of our human inclination, and if part of your work is to maybe uh, help us all get curious or explore whether, it, whether we uh, took on this narrative of the way things are is the way things are and decided to morph our lives in that direction instead of stay open to challenging that idea. And I wonder if there's some part of your work that wants to encourage people to go back to that four-year-old child who's, uh, who, who doesn't see justice for the animals. Part of it is justice, which is really, really strong. Um, I think the strongest thing of my work is to help people see our connectedness. Mm-hmm. And if you're connected and with something, then you treat it differently than if it's just a thing or an object or us versus them. It's something other than us. So a profound part of my work is to try to help people understand we're all in this together, mm-hmm. to enlarge our sense of community, to include all living beings. And what would that do? Mm-hmm. What would that do to the decisions we made? And what would that do to the consequences? Because we'd make such different decisions, we would not be in an environmental mess at all mm. if we had that approach. It's really so fundamentally simple. 
You treat all life with care and respect. That doesn't mean you don't eat meat. It doesn't mean you cut down trees. It means you do it with care and you don't waste anything and you're aware of what you're doing as mm-hmm. opposed to just doing it mindlessly. It makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. But you asked about what I want to share with that four-year-old child. It's, um, I think if we don't connect with life, we start to die somewhere. A part of us starts to die. Life becomes less meaningful. It becomes grayer. We need more distractions. We need addictions that give us a a sense of life that we would have had if we connected to begin with. Something We lose something profound if we start looking at other life as less than us Mm -hmm. or not important or not vibrant and vital, not part of our sense of company, family, companionship. We lose something really important. And that's tragic for us. It's tragic for the world. When I say world, I mean nature. Mm -hmm. So I'm really trying to help people reconnect to the original wonder and magic that everything around us, so many forces around us, try make us lose it. We've lost something. Mm. And I personally believe each of us can regain it. I think it's innate in us. Mm-hmm. When you say innate in us, you mean that that uh, wonder and that compassion, and what? Or say more about what you mean by what you think is innate in us that's been lost. Well, I think we're massively complicated. I think our brains are massively complicated. I think they evolved so fast that they're not that stable, in a way. Mm. And different societies and different family cultures can emphasize our capacity to be cruel or our capacity to be connected and loving and compassionate. I think we have different tendencies. Some of us have more tendencies towards the uh, cruelty or less sensitivity, and some of us have much more towards towards the sensitivity. But I, with the exception of certain t- types of um, psychopaths who I think brain wiring is just different, mm-hmm. I think they're not capable of empathy. But for the majority of us, there's an aspect that is. And it needs to be awakened, encouraged by our culture. Mm-hmm. And that go- goes to the idea of not thinking of just ourselves as as individuals that have to be developed, which I think is really, really important for each of us to become fully who we are and to bloom into our own unique individuality, but also to be part of a community. Mm-hmm. And uh, the joy that comes from that. I mean, my life is extremely difficult. Um, there's never enough money. I, I don't know how to get it. Um, we homesteaded the land. Literally, we had to build a bridge in order to get the land uh, to the land. Um, we were homesteading it. I still don't have hot water, and the little log cabin is unfinished all these years later. Um, animals get sick and, and die. Uh, our neighbors, when we first moved in, shot at us. They mm. killed our dog. Mm. Um, they didn't want those animals there. They consider all the animals that we have there a large, not they, a fair amount of the population of where I live want to kill all the wolves, all the bears, all the coyotes, all the badgers, all the foxes, all the animals we have Mm. are considered vermin. Mm. So we moved into this incredibly unwelcoming atmosphere 
um, it was by sheer, I don't know what, that we have finally got our licenses against the will of a large percentage of the community. Um, so there's a um, the constant tension of of my fellow humans being radically set against everything we're doing, um, the difficulty of starting a nonprofit from nothing with never having enough money on land that was completely undeveloped so that we had to build everything from scratch. And none of that mattered. None of that mattered. <laughs> it was not going to stop your mission. Is that what you mean by none of that mattered? I mean that my life was is from an outside point of view and to some extent my own experience really difficult, but it's so rich. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The richness of the connection mm -hmm. surpasses everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be true for everyone. I mean, if you actually feel that connection, like to some small extent, I shouldn't say to small extent, um, when someone really loves their dog, mm -hmm. it's really important and they'll do anything for it and nothing else matters. Right, right. right. That's what it, that's, that's what, the yeah. yeah. I'm just curious about that. In the what, I guess 16 years that you've been officially a nonprofit organization there outside of Dregs, um have you seen any any uh bending or reshaping or changing of the regard that the people in your area have for what you're doing? And does does the response you get from the community has it changed? And and does that um, does your experience within that community, uh, you know, offer a sense of greater optimism um, based on what you know? You've been neighbors now for a bunch of years. Just curious about what that's been and if it's changed over time and what that suggests for you. Well, the people who were most dead set against us have, have moved. Mm. Um, generally speaking, since we've been there for many years, there's been no incidents. Um, I would say there's a general acceptance. Mm -hmm. But uh, immediately, but the attitude towards all the animals we have in the state of Idaho and the Rocky Mountains has not changed at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, Constantly, the wolves are being managed or being hunted. And every state is desperately trying to overturn any protections. They want to just start to hunt grizzly bears again as tro trophy animals. Those attitudes have not changed at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's uh, that's. I'm sad to hear that. Um, um, my reaction is forget the sadness. Let's see what we can do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because they're killing them all the time. Hmm. And they're killing them with cruelty. Hmm. Poisoning, trapping, shooting from the air. And I guess, you know, for, uh, for you know, we talked about that four-year-old child, and for a lot of people, it sounds like your experience has been, not only has that compassionate impulse been been kind of snuffed out, but it's even been supplanted by a redefinition of wildlife that that and again you know it, it has a a different uh feel for people who 
who uh, feel that it, it could directly impact them, you know, ranchers and their livestock and the threat to them and that kind of thing. And so it's you're, you're living in an environment where the people around you, some of the people anyway, um, have a not just a passive view of wildlife, but a, 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 they have antipathy towards yes. it. Yeah. Um, so it's a very interesting juxtaposition. I'm sort of stuck in the middle of this environment where all the animals we have are, the antipathy is right. You, people, lovely, decent people get their eyes glazed over as they start talking about how awful wolves are. Mm. It's almost like a brainwashing. Mm. They're not thinking, and it's not based on any experience. Well, there's, there's some experience. Every now and then a wolf will kill some cattle. Um, but then there's the whole, you know, I don't know if we really want to get into that, the fact that they were there first, mm-hmm. and we keep expanding into their range, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole discussion to be had there of human rights versus the right of other life. And But I really don't know if it's either or. I think they're really good, creative, win-win solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get into that kind of thinking, is rigid thinking, and then we don't look at other ways to handle it so that the ranchers can have their livelihood and the animals can have their space and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that you and I have also talked about that um, seems especially challenging, as I'm thinking about this, seems especially challenging in light of the stories of the people that, uh, that hold this antipathy and earlier you said, let's not get sad about it. Let's do something about it. Um, how do you, what do you feel? And, and you and I've talked a lot about this before, but how do you feel is the best way to reach people in general to, to, um, to try to help them understand what your experience has been and other people like you who've had greater in-depth experience with, uh, with wild animals um, and, and, you know, what are the tools that you see as being most effective in, in helping people, again, people who may be passive develop a greater sense of wonder and appreciation, and then people who have antipathy, how to soften their stance. Uh, do you have, you know, what are your thoughts on how you want your, you, obviously you want your work to impact the, uh, um, people's mindsets around those things. What do you think are some of the best ways that you can do that and that we can all do that? I think there are two questions there. One is how can you reach people's feelings and then how can you change their behavior? Sure. Um, And they're two different things. There's a a really interesting book out called Nudge where how do you make massive changes in human behavior and sometimes you can do it by nudging people lightly in a direction of something that's positive. Mm-hmm. Um, my own feeling is as our brains developed, um, and there's research for this too, that our forebrains where we have will and conscious direction are not that strong compared to all of our instincts for sex, food, fighting, territory, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. We're really very much animals still. So that we have to be helped by social structures to move in the right direction. 
Um, that's one aspect. Another is we're the tremendous power of an individual, the tremendous change one person can do. Basically, one guy came up with the idea of wildlife corridors, and now they're imitated all around the world. The idea that we can't cut the earth up into little boxes and political and human ideas, that that there are natural flows of of water and um, passageways that animals have to have in order to survive. And that idea has started maybe 20 years ago, and now it's all over the world. And people are beginning to understand. And I think back to your original question. On some level, we understand natural flow versus flow being cut off. We resonate with it because most of us are cut cut off in our thinking. We're taught into little boxes. You know, there's some, someone would say to me once, wait a minute, you're a psychologist and a biologist? Those are two separate things. I said, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we're not animals with minds? Um, that mentality of everything in little boxes. And you go to a doctor for your heart, and you go to a doctor for your stomach, and you go to a doctor for your intestines, um, as if they're not interrelated. Mm-hmm. That type of thinking is what's caused one of the things that's caused so much trouble for us, that everything's in little boxes and not interconnected. And it goes again back to the idea that everything is all interconnected from our own bodies, our mind and our body is all one unit, and we're one unit on some level with all life. Um, So how do we begin to change the education system to encourage interdisciplinary thinking, understanding that things are related? And it really goes back to creative and openness versus closed and tight and rigid. And we do have to put things sometimes in boxes to study them to get to detail. But it's like learning how to use two sides of our brain or all our brain. We tend to divide them up so that some people are very detailed and specific and and more in boxes thinking, and some people are wildly creative. And we need to balance the two as a culture, and we need to balance the two um, within our own brains so that we function fully, so we're capable of looking in great focus detail and we're capable of thinking larger and wider and that's where you start to get into the spirituality and the mystery when the, when the connections aren't so tight and more information of a different type can come in and we haven't found a way to balance those and develop both of those individually or as a culture and that leads into a lot of the difficulties we had mm-hmm. um, I think there's another part of your question I haven't answered what can we do to reach people mm-hmm um, you know, and to frame that question maybe a little bit more, you mentioned before that uh, that we really are more creatures whose thinking is informed by our mo- our emotions more than our emotions are formed by our thinking. So, if if we have uh, if we're driven by our emotional by our emotions, and if we're driven by the experiences we've had, and yet. When we talk about the interconnectedness that people can or could have if they knew the experience of, of connecting with wild animals, but, but generally don't have very much of that connection, um, you know, how, how do you help bridge that? So if, you, if you're looking at a, a world where humanity has, has kind of cut itself off from wild animals, has, uh, has domesticated animals and changed the dynamic of you know, human animal relationships towards animals of servitude as opposed to 
you know, mutual coexistence and that everybody has this, this, uh, that, that four-year-old impulse of, of connection and compassion towards other animals has been kind of driven away. How do, how do you reinvite that connection for people who, you know, who, who may not, uh, generally have an opportunity to begin to with, have you, that you change the quality of nature films, which are largely dominated by a, 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 a male voice talking about birth, death, and, a, and almost every nature film has uh, some animal being killed. I shouldn't say almost, but a lot of them. There's, there's not enough in nature films that shows the beauty and this... Uh, I don't want to use the word spirituality because it got so many implications, but I don't know what other word to use. They're so mistaken in what the public wants. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's they don't want domination, hunting, blood and gore. Well, I shouldn't say that because some percentage does. But a lot of the population wants movies that show different possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the probably most popular things on the web are... Um, a lion carrying a baby baboon trying to protect it. Mm-hmm. Yes, you see a lot of that now. Yes, and we love it, mm-hmm. and there you are. Right. It's there in us. We want it. Right. Um, I actually collect, I have a library of all these things, of showing interspecies lovingness, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as much a part of life as the other, but we keep emphasizing the negative. So change how we do our movies. Mm. It's the same thing with the news. You know, pe- We're wired some Harvard researchers said we're wired to be four times more likely to attend to negative than the positive for obvious survival reasons. Mm-hmm. But that means you've got to give a lot more positive, <laughs> but it's easier to use the negative because that way you can sell advertising, that way you get attention. But I personally think the media is doing a massive, massive disservice by focusing on the negative. Mm-hmm. I think... And the fear, right? Uh, Why we should be it. afraid. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's so much possibility for encouraging courage and hope and positive solutions. Um, so that's a huge area where I think we can make a change. Mm. Um, for me personally, with my own work, um, we're small. Our animals are very comfortable with people, but we're not a zoo. Mm -hmm. I don't want, I wouldn't do to them to have lots of people to come through. Mm -hmm. It would ruin the opportunity to have a deep personal connection. I mean, if 10,000 people come through your kitchen, are you gonna develop a personal connection? No. If 10 people come through, you might. Mm -hmm. And our animals actually want to actually meet this other being that's coming by in the form of human, Mm -hmm. because that's what they do. They don't meet 10,000 other beings. They want to meet, and you can't do that tons of people so I can only have very small groups I don't want to impose on the animals I don't want to overwhelm them and I don't want to have offer relatively meaningless encounters not that zoos don't have their place um, but that's not what we do Mm -hmm. we try to show a deeper connection so the only way I can do it is through writings stories website lots and lots of videos Mm-hmm. Um, to try to help people get a feel of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't film Thunder. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And 
at the time. I have pictures of him. But quite a few of the stories that I have on the website that I'll be telling you here, I actually have video of. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer um, just an idea or someone making stuff up. You can see it for yourself. Which makes the stories so much more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent we can, since most people can't have a direct experience with a wild animal, though actually you can more than you think, because wherever you are, there are birds, um, squirrels, um, foxes, whatever. Um, you try to make it as alive and vivid and immediate as possible through the stories in the video. Mm-hmm. What, you know, what are, uh, are there some takeaways that you've had since opening Earthfire? Um, I, I know that there are, but you you mentioned that, that not being a zoo, there's limits to how much invitation to other people and... Um, but as that has happened, and as other people have come to visit, and some of some people who may not have any uh, any kind of professional direction around wild animals, and then many who do, but is there is there so far on this journey with Earth Fire Institute? Is there a feeling? Is there any moments or stories that uh, that you feel especially fond of in how uh, humans have? have had the experience there and what, you know, what, um, along the line, along the journey of trying to do what you would like to do in inviting humans to see wild animals in a different way. Is there a, a story that comes to mind and how that happened for somebody who was visiting? Actually, I'm going to first go back to how Earthfire got founded. When I, when I met Jean, um, he had just gotten some wolf puppies that um, had been used in a movie and didn't have a home. And he brought them back. And I looked at those puppies and they were in a little box. I looked at them and my life has never been the same. They needed a lot of nurturing. Um, they all became extremely sick and nearly died and needed to be taken care of with IVs every two hours or seven of them, 24 hours around the clock. And something happened there that I felt like it changed my genetic makeup. Um, the bond was so intense. That really in another sense, was the founding of Earthfire. One was my wolf dog, Tatanka, and the other was this intense experience with these animals that, like my first cat, opened me. That just opened me even more. And I I saw who they were. I saw the capacity. Because they were young, we had this. um, There were no barriers between me and another animal. And then I'll tell the story later of Teton Totem and how he changed and how he became open to people. 
but because he is, I mean, I, I also told him that, that that picnic, bare human picnic we had, but people will come and visit Teton, and he'll come up. Yes, they're behind bars because it's a grizzly and a human, but he'll come right up. And again, there's like a foot or two space. And people are just absolutely mesmerized. Again, the story I'll tell later about the sweetness in his eyes that are, is there now that wasn't there before, and they will just start to cry. Mm. Yeah. Um, a bison, bluebell. Again, that's another story, but she's bonded to humans now, and she will come up and demand to uh, she she's tuned into energies and quite a few of the people who come are like energy people who are into energy healing she discovered that and she's like an energy pig Mm. (laughs) (laughs) she she expects when anyone comes that they have that quality and they're going to go and they're going to give it to her so she comes up and sort of leans against the fence demanding it and people are able to actually touch a bison, feel the response, and the look of utter wonder on their faces. Mm-hmm. And to some degree that happens with each of our animals. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say our animals, the animals under my care. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Susan, for the conversation and for the story that reminds us of the beauty of life. Thank you, John, for making it possible. You're welcome. And if you'd like more information, please go to earthfireinstitute.org. That's earthfireinstitute, one word, dot O-R-G.